A warm greetings to all of you on this last great day of the feast, a very special day in so many ways, a day that we look forward to when our friends, our relatives, and much of the world have the opportunity to know the truth. I'm reminded at this time of a Bible study that I held with a group of teens about 40 years ago, plus or minus a couple of years. These were teenagers who had grown up in the church, every single one of them, and there were 20 to 25 uh, young people that were there. We had a Bible study, and at the end of the Bible study, we played a little bit of Bible charades. And I put a number of topics in a hat, and they would draw it out, and then certain ones would have to act it out for their, their team and try to guess what that particular phrase or incident was. And on this occasion, one of them was the Valley of Dry Bones. And I thought they would get that very quickly, but I was shocked that not a single one of them got it. Furthermore, not just that team, but none of the teens who were there, 20 to 25 of them, even knew about the Valley of Dry Bones. And I thought, how can this be? They have attended services all their lives, even though they might be short lives. Nevertheless, they were 13 to 17 years of age, approximately. And one would think that having attended the feast year after year, and most of them had been born into the church, that they would have understood the Valley of Dry Bones. I was absolutely stunned that none of them did. In fact, one of the girls went home, and she was talking to her sister, who was an ambassador to college at the time, and she said to her, I know the Valley of the Dolls can't be in the Bible. That's how much she got out of the whole thing. She just it didn't even understand the right phraseology there. So on today's uh, sermon that I'm giving here, I want to make sure that everyone knows the story of the Valley of Dry Bones. It's something that we need to know because it has profound significance for all of this world. And so I'm going to cover the meaning of this day and also in the process cover the Valley of Dry Bones. This is a separate feast from all the others. We started out in the spring of the year with the Passover, and then we had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and then we come to these fall festivals when we have the Feast of Trumpets that pictures God's intervention, God's direct intervention with mankind as a whole. It pictures the seven trumpets of Revelation and the last trumpet when Jesus Christ returns. The Day of Atonement shows that one of the first acts that he's going to do is remove Satan, the devil, the one who has been deceiving mankind for all this period of time. And following that, we see that there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth with the saints. Hopefully that's you and that's me. A time when there will be peace and no longer war. A time when people will live healthy lives, prosperous lives, and in harmony with one another and between nations. We've been picturing that the last seven days. And I hope that you've enjoyed those days, not only physically, but from a spiritual perspective of understanding the wonderful, incredible plan that God is working out here below. These are not festivals like or feasts or holidays as the world has them where there doesn't seem to be any continuity. But we have the very master plan of God laid out in these holy days and these festivals. And we can be thankful for that. It's precious knowledge that almost nobody in this world knows. They may have bits and pieces, but they don't understand it. And especially when we come to this last great day, they do not understand this part of God's plan. What about the rest of mankind? We've seen that God is working with some people with the Feast of uh, Pentecost, that he's working with a certain number of people. We see that during the millennium, all people are going to be given an opportunity. But what about all those millions and even billions of people who have lived down through time who never had an opportunity to know the truth, to make an, an informed decision? What about those who never heard the name of Christ? There were people who lived prior to Christ's coming, and even during the life of Jesus Christ, who lived in other parts of the world, in China, and New Guinea, uh, and the South Sea Islands, all over the world, people right uh, where we are right now, where I am, in North America, 
whether it be Canada or United States or Mexico or even South America, who had no opportunity whatsoever of even hearing the name of Jesus Christ. What about that man who died or woman or child who died three days after Christ's resurrection, who would have no opportunity whatsoever of even hearing his message, much less, much less knowing what he did for us on the stake? What about those people? What about little babies who die, never having had an opportunity to make a choice one way or the other? You know, the world has their approach toward it. Uh, uh, Catholicism, I'll just mention it that way because that's what it is. Uh, Catholicism has a place for those babies called Limbus Infantium. And those who came before Christ as Limbus Patrium. Protestants, uh, on the other hand, don't try to explain it usually, unless they're pinned down, and I'll give you an example of that in a few minutes here. But what about Muslims, Buddhists, and atheists? I often speak of my atheist Uncle George, a very base individual, but a man who had a certain logical mind, and when he realized he was lied to about religion, he rejected religion and went down a path that really suited his personality anyway, a life of sin. What about him? He really didn't get it. He didn't understand. And so many of our neighbors are that way. They're maybe nicer people than my Uncle George. They're decent people. They try to do good to some degree. But they just don't understand God's plan. What is going to happen to all of those people? And this reminds me of a young man in Greenwood, Mississippi, many, many years ago, about 1973 or 4, that I visited. And he had a discussion with his minister. He was only 18 years of age, but he had read our literature. And so he asked his minister, what happens to all these people? What happens to babies? What happens to people who have never had an opportunity to know the truth? And the minister said, well, if they they don't accept Christ, they will burn in hell. And he said, but is that fair? What about those people that, that could never hear of the name of Christ? And so the minister, trying to fumble around, coming up with an answer, said, well, I guess that God will have to judge them based on what they know. And this young man was pretty sharp. He then went to the scripture in Acts, the fourth chapter. And let's turn over there, Acts 4. And he either referred to it or read it to him. I don't remember which it was, but he did uh, reference this particular passage. Uh, In verse 11, it says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which became the chief cornerstone. He's speaking, obviously, of Jesus Christ. He says, nor is there salvation, this is verse 12 of Acts 4, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so he said to the the minister, are you telling me that there is another path to salvation than than otherwise through Jesus Christ? And we might well say, checkmate. He had him on the ropes. He he had no answer. He could come up with no answer. He didn't understand. Even though he'd gone to seminary and studied the Bible and taught other people supposedly from the Bible, no doubt a very devout man in certain ways, but he had absolutely no answer that an 18-year-old could bring up to him. And, of course, this young man knew the answer to it when he asked the question. I'm reminded also of the time when my wife worked at a department store and we had a dishwasher that needed repairing. And so one of the men that worked in the department where she was, uh, she invited over and uh, to come and look at our dishwasher. And he came over and we got into a conversation about religion. He knew I was a minister. And I asked them the same thing. I went to the same question that that young man did. And eventually he said, well, if they want to know God, he will get the word to them. Now, there's another scripture that contradicts that, and that's Romans, the 10th chapter, shows the the fallacy of that. I actually didn't quote this to him. I should have. I should have known this scripture well enough to, to go to it, because, again, it would have been checkmate. In Romans, the 10th chapter... We'll begin in verse, uh, or let's say uh, verse 11. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jews and Greek, 
For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And then verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is a scripture that Protestants love to read. Whoever calls on him will be saved. And they look at it from the perspective that's all we have to do is just call on the name of Jesus Christ. But then verse 14 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How can they believe in Christ? How can they call on God to, to save them if they don't know anything about God or know anything about Jesus Christ? How can they call in the name of Christ when they've never heard that name? And how shall they hear without a preacher? In other words, unless there's someone who comes to them and gives that message to them. Now we have many ministers down through time who have gone into all parts of the world to try to save these individuals. But what happens? The old question comes up. What happens if the preacher has a flat tire on the way to the village and the person dies before he gets there? What happens to him? According to traditional Christianity, he's going to go to hell and he's going to burn forever and ever. But is that really fair? If we accept what modern Christianity teaches, we must conclude that huge numbers of people are lost forever. In fact, the vast majority of mankind has been lost. That's what we must conclude if we're logical and fair, if we believe what the world teaches on this subject, modern Christianity. We would have to believe that huge numbers are lost without being given a fair chance. They weren't even given a chance to know, and yet huge numbers will have been lost. And if hell, which is taught by most mainstream ministers, is true, then God is indeed a cruel and an unfair God. You don't think about it. How long is eternity? How long is it? It's, is it uh, as many years as there are stars in the universe? Uh, we, we, we don't know how many there are. There have been estimates come out recently that go way beyond 100 billion galaxies and 100 billion stars in each galaxy. It goes way, way beyond that. It's amazing how many stars there are out there. But if you just took one and you said number of years based on the number of stars, or let's look at it another way. Let's take a billion years. And eternity is a billion years squared. That's a billion times a billion. And then squared again and is squared a billion times. Eternity is a long time. It's an awful long time if you are burning in hell or being tortured in hell as the world teaches. So we have to think about it if the hell that is taught by mainstream ministers is true, God is indeed a cruel and an unfair God. Because how much evil, how much uh, sin can one commit in the period of a short life? And especially for those who maybe live a very short time, they die at age 25 or whatever it might be, or even earlier. Uh, could they have committed enough sin to justify a punishment for all of eternity? Furthermore, we must conclude that Satan is stronger than God because he is winning more souls, as it were, as the expression goes. He has more people following him than are following Jesus Christ and God. And that's something that almost anybody can conclude. I don't think there are a lot of people out there that are going to dispute that because by any definition of Christian other than origins, who thought that he had a different definition. I won't go into that, but uh, otherwise, uh, you know, most people's definition of what it means to be Christian, Satan must be more powerful than God. And yet God can get man's attention if he wants to. A bolt of lightning about three inches off your left ear, that'll get your attention. God can get the attention of mankind, and he will get the attention of mankind when it is his time to do so. But according to this world's religion, we must conclude that, well, Satan is stronger than God because if he's trying to save everybody right now, then he must be failing. The other option is that mainstream Christian doctrines are missing something. There's something that they are missing. There's something they don't know. And that, of course, is the answer. And the answer is because they do not keep these festivals, these festivals that show us God's plan. 
they kind of understand the death of Christ, and he paid the penalty for our sins, but they don't understand the days of unleavened bread, which show us that we must respond to his grace that he has given to us at Passover, that we need God's Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ living his life in us, and that he's working with a few during this age, which we see in the Feast of Pentecost. We, we, you know, without knowing those things, without knowing that Christ is really going to come back to this earth, he's really going to get man's attention as pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, and that there is a spirit being who is deceiving all of mankind that must be removed, and that there is a, a better time, a millennium, and then finally this last great day, without understanding God's plan, they, they really don't get it. They just don't understand it because they don't keep these days. And these days show a continuous plan that God has marked out for us. And we can be thankful, and we must be thankful for the fact that God has opened up our minds. And part of the meaning of this day really has to do with the fact that God has opened our minds. We're not smarter than a lot of these other people out there. I know I'm certainly not. There are those of you in this audience who are smarter than me. You might not have had the same experiences, the same background, but when it comes to just intellect, you're smarter. And there are people out in the world who are smarter than you. I don't care who you are in the audience. There's always somebody there who is smarter than you. And yet they don't have the spiritual understanding that God has given you and that he's given me by his grace, by his mercy. For whatever reason he's called us, we can be so thankful for that because there is a timing that God is working out as we shall see. Mankind has been cut off from God, and that's evident from the, the very beginning in Genesis, the third chapter. We see that after Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, that God kicked them out of the garden. And here in the third chapter, beginning in verse 22, um, he says, Then the eternal God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. In other words, to determine good and evil. They were told what was good, what was evil already. But this had to do with determining for themselves what is good and evil. So they want to be gods themselves. They want to determine right from wrong. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the eternal God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turns every way to guard the way to the tree of life, to keep man from partaking of that particular tree. Now, it's very interesting that uh, a lot of these things come out in Greek and other kinds of mythology. I remember growing up, going to the movies every Saturday. I didn't know any better at the time. And uh, every Saturday for 15 or 25 cents, I could go to the movie. And so I saw a lot of movies in those days. And we'd all meet there. And I remember uh, seeing this uh, movie about Jason and this golden fleece and the mythology that inspired that movie, that <clears throat> there was a golden fleece that was in a tree that had special properties, and it was guarded by a dragon. And so you see Jason finding this tree and going up to it, and it's covered, the ground is covered with leaves. And as he's walking up to the tree, it begins to move, the ground underneath him. Because it is a dragon that is laying somewhat dormant there with a few leaves on him, doesn't realize that's what it is. But anyway, he, uh, he has to fight and slay this dragon. I don't remember much of the rest of the story. But I remember that particular scene. It's a little bit vague in my mind now, but I've, I've remembered it. So a few years ago, back in, um, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but uh, within the last uh, five, six years, my wife and I and several others had the opportunity to go to uh, Italy and various other places in, <clears throat> in Europe. And specifically, we went to the Vatican Museum. And there were all kinds of art pieces there. And there was one of this tree, and this man standing there, it was Jason, and uh, the golden fleece in the tree. And there was a dragon that he had to slay. I don't remember all the details of this figurine, but I, I remember that's what it was of. And so I asked the guide uh, if there was any connection between that and the Genesis story. 
and our guide confirmed that there was. That was the reason they had that in the Vatican Museum. Now, I don't know if he was just going along with the question or not, but I thought it was interesting that this mythological character, this mythological story, which is not exactly entirely myth, it comes from, it was inspired by uh, Genesis, the third chapter, was there. It was just a small figurine, but it was there in the Vatican Museum, as well as many other things that uh, had various meanings. So I thought that was rather interesting. Now, in the New Testament, we find that mankind continued to be cut off from God. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, we have the parable of the sower. But after Jesus gave the parable, he spoke it to those who were there. Uh, We find that the disciples came and said to him in verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, this is Matthew 13, 10, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. It was not given to the people in general. Let's notice also in Mark the fourth chapter, because this is a parallel account, Mark 4, and let's notice verse uh, 10. It says, but when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. I'm giving you the opportunity to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, I speak to them in parables. Why? So that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear, and not understand, lest they should turn, and their sins be forgiven them. So, Jesus deliberately withheld the meaning to the people through these parables, so that he would not, at that time, forgive their sins. That's really very interesting. That that really flies in the face of what everybody in this world thinks of, of Christ and the purpose of his coming. Now, it has to do with a matter of time. Christ died for all mankind. Every human being that's ever lived, he he paid the penalty for. But when it comes to forgiveness, we must come to him and we must ask for forgiveness. We must look to him and claim his promise, claim the blood of Jesus Christ in faith. So he says here, and that they should be forgiven them, their sins be forgiven them. Notice verse 34. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So to the world, he spoke to parables. It says there, without a parable, he did not speak to them. But when he was alone, he explained these things to his disciples. And then we found in the 13th chapter of uh, Matthew, as well as here in Mark, the fourth cha- uh, chapter, that after he explained this, then he went on to explain the parable of the sower. He'd given it to him already. He said, he spoke, they asked, why do you speak in parables? He gave them the answer. And then he explained to his disciples, when they were by themselves, what the parable actually meant. And this was one of the parables that's probably easier to understand, but some of them are rather obscure. It's a little bit more difficult. But the world just doesn't get it. They don't understand God's plan. And it's not their fault because they haven't been, uh, I say it's not their fault, it is in a way, because they've been willing participants in uh, Satan's uh, way of doing things. But nevertheless, God has not given them the chance to really understand right now. There's a difference between being guilty of sin and having an opportunity to have your sins forgiven and to understand God's plan of salvation. So all mankind is guilty of sin. But not all of mankind has been given an opportunity to have those sins forgiven as of this time. And John 6, we are very familiar with this. You probably could quote it. I probably shouldn't have to turn over here, but I'll just make sure that I get it right. John 6, 44, it says, No one can come to me. This is Jesus speaking. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him 
In other words, God draws him to him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, that should cause us to think, because if if God the Father has to call us, and Jesus said no one can come to him unless the Father uh, causes him to be uh, drawn to him, then that would indicate that not everybody is being called. If everybody were being called, what would be the purpose of making this statement? And then over in verse 65, he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So he repeats this twice in this chapter to emphasize the point that no one can come to Jesus Christ unless the Father draws him, brings him to him. And so we find that there are people who simply have not been called at this time. In Second uh, Peter, the third chapter, Second Peter 3, And in verse 9, 2 Peter 3, and verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men or some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He's very patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When we think about it, God said to man, in effect, to Adam and Eve and mankind down through time, you want to do your own thing. You want to decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong. You want to play God. Okay, have at it. You've got 6,000 years approximately uh, to make that decision to, to, to try it your way and see how it works. And when we look at our world, we see that it's not working very well. And we find that our children suffer And people ask the question, well, if God is a merciful God, why does he allow this? Well, when you think about it, we wouldn't like it any other way. How many people would like the fact that God would extinguish every cigarette whenever they try to light it or extinguish the match or cause the lighter not to to light up? How many people would like God doing that? How many people would like God telling them what they can do in terms of sexual relations? We, we see the world, they don't want God telling what to do. In fact, that's one of the reasons for people being atheists, because they don't want God in their business. But then when things don't go well, based on the choices and the decisions we make, we want to blame God and, and claim, well, God, what, what's the matter? You, if you're so all-powerful, why do you stop all this heartache and suffering? But God is allowing this period of time so that mankind can deeply learn the the, uh, message of it all, and we then can make the right choices, and he knows that when we overcome and we do make the right choices, and we are, are firm in our choice to obey him, and we recognize that he is God Almighty, and we are flesh, when we realize that, even when we're spirit beings, we will recognize that he knows best, that our Father knows best. And so there's a a great purpose in this, a great purpose even in suffering. And we can learn some very powerful lessons from it and lasting lessons because God is looking at his family from the perspective of all of eternity. And if people are not going to live according to his way, he will simply extinguish them. But he's going to give everybody a fair chance to choose his way. And we, how can you say that God is, is unfair when he's going to give everybody a fair chance? But he's going to do it his way, not our way. We would come up with some other plan and purpose, but it wouldn't work as well as the way that God is doing it. So we see here that it is not his will that anybody should perish but that all should come to repentance, come to the place of repentance where we turn away from our former way and go the right way. In 1 Timothy, the second chapter, 1 Timothy 2, and in verse 3, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So this is good. It's acceptable. It's the right thing. It's a positive thing. 
who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So from these two passages, from Second uh, Peter 3, 9 and 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, we learn that it's God's will that all come to the knowledge of the truth, that all repent of their sins and their way of life, and that all would be saved. That's his will. That's his desire. And he's working that out. But if that's the case, how do we explain it in terms of what we see around us and the common religious idea that this is now the only day of salvation? One particular scripture that is used to say that now is the only time of salvation is found in 2 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. 2 Corinthians 6 and verses 1 and 2. It says, We then... As workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So this is often thrown up to say that now is the day of salvation. Everybody's given a chance at this time. But what, what about those people before Christ? If this is the only day of salvation, well, there are two things we should learn from this. First of all is where does it come from? Because we can see very clearly verse 2 is quoted, and it's quoted from the 49th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 49. Let's notice it. Isaiah 49, verse 8. Thus says the Eternal, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth to cause them to inherit desolate, the desolate heritages. Now, when you look at that, uh, in this particular translation, it says, and in the day of salvation, I will preserve you in an acceptable time. But it says the day of salvation. That's from the New King James. The Old King James says it this way. Thus says the Eternal, in an acceptable time, I have heard you or heard thee. And in a day of salvation, have I helped you. So he speaks of a day of salvation as opposed to the day of salvation. Now, that's one way of understanding this, but let me just say this. Almost none of us are Greek or Hebrew scholars. And so here we have an example where one translation translates the word a day of salvation. The other one translates it the day of salvation. So I don't think that we should try to be Greek or Hebrew scholars, because it has to do with the context, it has to do with how the word is used, and all kinds of factors that most of us simply are not skilled in. But what we can say is that very clearly, the word the or a is a translation that scholars have used. Some use the, some use a. So a would be an acceptable translation for it. Uh, and yet, in the New Testament, because this concept of this is the only day of salvation, they've translated the day. But more importantly, if we look at the context of both passages, here in Isaiah, it's talking about uh, the time after Christ returns. If you just go look at verse 7, thus says the Eternal, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom a man despises to him whom the nations abhor, to the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the eternal who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. He's talking about Israel, and he's talking about uh, calling them. He speaks in verse 9, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate places. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. If you just look at this, you see that the, the context of it is a time in the future. It's not talking about right now. It's talking about a time after Christ returns. Now let's go back to Second Corinthians, the sixth chapter. And 
Here, we have to ask the question, who is he talking to? Well, very simply, the answer is he's talking to the church of God at Corinth. He's talking to converted people or people who are prospective members. And so when he says, behold, now is the accepted time, behold, now is the day of salvation, whether we say it is a day of salvation, which is, I've looked up at least the Hebrew and the Greek, and that's certainly one translation of it. But either way, the point is that the context of it is that for those people, that is their day of salvation. Just like I can say to all of you, now is the day of salvation for you and me. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean every last person in the audience, but very clearly for us, now is our day of salvation. Now is the time of salvation for us. So whether you look at it from a a grammatical perspective, we, we know that A is acceptable because some scholars believe that that's the way it should be translated. But secondarily, when you look at the context of both passages, one is talking about yet future, and the other is talking to the Corinthians and saying to them that it now is the day of salvation. He's saying, wake up. He's saying, wake up to you. When you read the whole whole uh, book or letter of Second Corinthians, but very specifically, uh, he he's talking to them, and for them, it is the day of salvation or was the day of salvation for them. But it was certainly a day of salvation as well. Let's go to Revelation, the 20th chapter. And let's notice what the flow of events are in the 20th chapter of Revelation. Because this is a very important passage when it comes to this subject. It begins in verse 1. Uh, where it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he lays hold of the serpent of old, uh, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So this is talking about the Day of Atonement. Then verse 4 talks about the millennium. He says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's what we just celebrated in the Feast of Tabernacles. But then he makes some very interesting statements here. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. All the rest of the dead. In other words, when Christ returns and the resurrection takes place, we hope that we are there. We plan to be there. We trust God's promises that he will resurrect us. He will give us eternal life. And that we will be a part of the ruling family of God during that thousand-year period of time. That's what we are looking forward to. But what about all the other people who have lived and who have died? He says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. In other words, what, what he's describing there, verse 4, that's the first resurrection. It's referring back to that. But the rest of the dead don't come up for a thousand years. Now, if they weren't Christ's at his coming, then we know that they are, quote, lost. We know that they were not converted in their lifetime and faithful to the very end. We know that about them. Otherwise, they would be there during the thousand years when we're ruling on this earth and bring peace to this earth for the millennium. He says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So there's going to be a difference between the first resurrection and this resurrection, the rest of the dead living again at the end of the thousand years. And very clearly, the first resurrection is to eternal life. The second resurrection is not. Because it says, blessed is he, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. But the second death can still have power over those people who come up in that second resurrection because they still have to prove themselves as we shall see. Now, they will have the opportunity for eternal life as well, but they still have to prove that that's the way that they want to go. And so we skip down here. It says, uh, 
Uh, well, we won't skip so much. Verse 7, now when the thousand years have expired, so it's at the end, after the thousand years have passed, which is a misunderstanding that some have. I, I remember attending the feast in uh, an island location, and they, uh, people didn't understand that it's at the end of the thousand years. It's a, a period of time that's tacked on. They were thinking that it was the last hundred years of the millennium, but that's not what the Scripture says at all. So it says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So we find at the end of the thousand years, there are human beings on the face of the earth, which really kind of flies in the face of one large uh, Sabbath-keeping denomination who says that everybody's dead for a thousand years. Where do these people come from? Where do these nations come from? And as it says that they're, they're a huge number, whose number is as a sand of the sea, a large number of people at the end of the thousand years, at the end of the millennium. And so Satan is loosed. He goes out to deceive, uh, deceive the nations. And then we read how he's going to be defeated. The nations that fight against God at that time are going to be defeated. And we might say, well, well how can that possibly be with the thousand-year reign of Christ. Well, there is a powerful spirit being. These people will no doubt be warned. They'll have this scripture. They'll be warned that there's coming a time when unusual thoughts may begin to come into their minds. And certain individuals will stir up strife and wrath. And and we, we, we think, well, how can that happen? Well, how does it happen today? From time to time, we will have individuals who are supposedly converted, supposedly baptized, but the wrong thoughts will come into their mind and they begin to stir up strife and they hear rumors and they pass rumors on and they get stirred up to fight against the church of God. So if it can happen today, why wouldn't it happen then? Even with all that has gone on during the millennium, it can still happen. Then in verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne... And him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead. Here's at the end of the millennium when all the rest of the dead are going to live again. And I saw the dead, small and great. The little people of the world, the great people of the world. Uh, the, the ones whose names we would recognize and names that we couldn't even pronounce, much less recognize or know of. And you know, that is, that is so encouraging that God is going to resurrect all of these people. It says they're standing before God and books were open. These individuals are going to have their opportunity to stand before God. Now, if they are guilty of sin, which they are, and they don't have a chance to change that, then, then why would they stand before God? The, the idea that there's this, this time when they come before God and all these books are open with all their sins doesn't make sense. Why would we go through the process? We know they weren't rec- uh, resurrected in the first resurrection. They're not resurrected to eternal life, at least not yet. But if there's no chance for eternal life, why go through this process? It says books were opened. What books? Well, the books of this that we call the Bible, the Biblos. The books of the Bible, these books that have been closed to their understanding. How many people open up the Bible and can't make heads or tails of it? They make no sense of it at all. They simply do not understand it. I've talked to many people over the years who have said that I I just don't understand the Bible. I've also known people who have picked up our literature and read the Bible, and they've taken the literature and they've thrown it away because it makes no sense. I remember one man that said six months later, he happened to pick up the same booklet and it made perfect sense because God had turned that screw in his head. God had opened his mind with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it did make sense at that time. So here they are standing before God and books were opened. And then it says another book was opened, which is the book of life. And you can study that and find that we must have our names written in the book of life if we're going to have eternal life. But why would that book be open if everybody has had their chance and it's already been decided it would be a closed book? There'd be no opportunity unless we have a kind of a fiendish God who says, whoops, let me look here. Can I? No, I can't find it. 
you know, you go that way. That's not, that's not the God that we worship. That's not the God of the Bible. He's talking about the opportunity, the book of life being open so that people can have their names written in it. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now, again, is that talking about a listing of sins of people or are they judged by the things of the Bible? We might turn over here to, um, was it James, the book of James, the second chapter. And it says in verse 10, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And the the entirety of the Bible is about, really, uh, among other things, it's about the law of God, a a way of life. Uh, we, We choose God's way or we can choose Satan's way. And from all the way from the beginning to the end. And I'm not leaving out Christ's sacrifice and all that because he was sacrificed to pay the penalty of our transgressions. And if we have no transgression, there's no law, no sin, there's no need for a Savior. But we, we know that we need him because we have sin. And so it says we're going to be judged by the law of God. And the, the whole Bible shows us the law of God, the mind of God, And it also shows us what happens when people violate the law of God or when people obey the law of God. A good example of that uh, is uh, the book of uh, Judges. Uh, All through the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel. There was no central authority. Everybody did that which is right in his own eyes. And it's a book of heartache and suffering. And that's, that's the result of man's way. So we're judged by the things written in this these books all together collectively. So back in Revelation again, uh, the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And it says, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead uh, who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. How we work according to the laws of God, how we conduct ourselves, have we chosen God's way, or are we still going to choose our own way, which really is Satan's way. And then it says, and anyone, verse 15, not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there is that second death when they are cast in the lake of fire and other scriptures show they'll simply be burned up. Now let's go back to uh, Ezekiel, the 37th chapter. Let's, let's get to this passage where it talks about the valley of dry bones and if you've got a, a teenager sitting next to you uh, and he's sleeping or he's playing video games or writing notes to his, his girlfriend or something, then be sure you wake him up at this point because one of my goals in this sermon is to make sure that everybody knows what the Valley of Dry Bones is. And our teenagers, even younger, can understand this. Uh, we, we, it's, it's not that difficult. It's not that hard to understand. And we should know it. So let's begin in verse 1. It says, The hand of the Lord uh, came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the, the Lord, or the Eternal, and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. So here's a valley, and it's full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. Bones actually have moisture. We, we don't think of it that way, but there's a lot of moisture in a bone. But when it's been uh, dead or the person that the bone belonged to has been dead for a long time and all the flesh has been eaten away or uh, rotted away and the bones are the only things that are left, they become very dry. And so it says here that they were very dry because they've been dead for a long time. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I always like it when God asks us a question that only he knows. So I answered, O Lord God, you know. You know whether they can live or not. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the eternal. 
So he was to do that. Thus says the eternal or the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Now we've got bones and we've got breath, breath being physical, just as bones are physical. He says, I will put sinews on you. That's connecting tissues, ligaments, tendons, and so forth. Cover you with skin and put breath in you. I'm sorry, I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you. That's muscle tissue. Cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then, notice, then you shall know that I am the eternal. I'd given a sermon uh, some years ago uh, in the Living Church of God where I point out the expression that I am the eternal. And I was using mostly the book of Leviticus because it was showing that God was saying, don't do this, don't do that, but do what I say because I am the eternal. I am the authority. I am the one that you should follow. And one of our members wrote to me and said, that the place where that expression is used more than any other is in the book of Ezekiel. And here's one of those places. And so Ezekiel, in a sense, is saying, okay, you didn't listen to me before. Now, when I do these things, then you will know that I am the eternal. Then you will know that I am the great ruler, the one that is above all else. So if you don't accept the lesson then I will teach you the lesson at a later time. And he talks about going into captivity. He talks about a number of things. But here is a time when he says, I'm going to resurrect you so that you have bones and you have flesh and you have skin and you have connecting tissues. And I'm going to put breath in you and you shall live. And he says, then at that time, you will know that I am the eternal. I look forward to the day when my Uncle George comes up, and I'd like to be there when that happens, because I hope that God, in a way, I hope God will give me the opportunity to work with him, because he's got a lot of crow to eat, believe me. Of course, I also want to be there when my mother and father come up out of the grave, and perhaps others that we've known. Uh, my wife lost some children. I hope that maybe they will come up. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, we, we hope that that's the case. We want to see people. We want to see our neighbors. And they'll find out that maybe we're, we weren't as crazy as, as they thought we were at that time. But to be able to work with them and to be able to bring them to salvation so they too can have their chance for eternal life. That's a wonderful thing that that God is allowing. So he says, then you shall know uh, that I am the eternal. Uh, verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. So they were bodies, but no breath. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the, uh, the, the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. These individuals who once lived and are dead, breathe on them and let them live again. So I prophesied, verse 10, as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. An exceedingly great number of people, literally billions of human beings that will come back to life at that time. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So God begins working with Israel, then he works with the other nations. But even among the Israelite nations, when you look at all those who have lived and died down through history, it's going to be an exceedingly great number. He says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. This is the attitude. These aren't people that come up out of their grave and say, well, this must be heaven. These are going to be people that went to their graves thinking that all hope was lost, that there was no future for them, that they were going to die and they were going to stay dead forever. That's, that's going to be the attitude that, 
they went to their grave with if they had a chance to think it over. Sometimes we die so suddenly we don't have a chance to think. But most people, as we get older, we, we begin to think about the purpose and the meaning and how many people go to their graves with absolutely no hope whatsoever of eternal life. So it's a, it's a sad state and a dark state for those individuals. So this is what they have thought. Uh, they indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore, verse 12, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Notice verse 13, Then you shall know that I am the Eternal when I have opened your graves. These are not people who knew God before. This is when they come to know God. Uh, then you shall know that I am the eternal when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. So God is going to give these individuals his spirit and they're going to live. And I will place you in your own land. Again, notice, then you shall know that I, the eternal, have spoken it and performed it, says the eternal. So this is when people are going to understand. It's It's so plain that these are people who went to the grave thinking all hope was lost, and then they're going to be resurrected to physical life, very physical, bones and flesh and breath and all the rest, and they're going to learn God's way, and they're going to have their opportunity to have eternal life. What a wonderful plan that God is working out here below. In Isaiah 65, we have a passage of Scripture that we cannot know absolutely, but when you start looking for possibilities of, of when this fits in, uh, we have traditionally said, and I think rightfully said, that it's talking about the, this time uh, after the millennium when these people are resurrected. Because in verse 20 it says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. A little tiny baby that just dies, maybe two or three or four days or maybe a month or so. Uh, no more will that be the case, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. He's going to be given 100 years. But the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So this seems to indicate that if we put this in the context of what we've been reading, that when God resurrects these people after the millennium, this white throne judgment period that Revelation talks about, this general resurrection that sometimes people refer to, and we'll see a little bit of that, uh, that, that Jesus referred to, we, we, we believe that it will be that hundred years, a full hundred years. People will have to have time to overcome. Some people have been so hardened in sin. Some people have had so many bad habits. They're not going to be resurrected and suddenly be made perfect. But they're going to have to work out of some of the things. There are people who are going to have to change everything about the way they've thought. Well, I guess everybody has to do that. But when you think of some of the, the cruel people of this world, some of the atheists who fought against God, the evolutionists, the, the Darwinists who believe that there is no God, it's going to take them a little time to change. And God is going to give them a period of time so that they, they have a full and a complete chance to choose God's way. That's what we understand from this passage of Scripture, and I think that that is, is a correct understanding of it. The context is sometimes hard to, to know absolutely, and I think we can be open and honest with ourselves and say that, look, this is what it seems to be, this is what we think it means, uh, this is where it seems to fit, but recognize that there are a lot of things that we don't know about the Scriptures. But what we do know is that there's coming a time when there will be a resurrection of these people, and they will be judged by their works, by what they do from that day forward. And so it's going to take a period of time for them to make that transition. And God is going to give them a full opportunity to do so. Now, with this understanding, it explains such, such scriptures as Matthew, the 11th chapter, Matthew 11 and verse 20. says, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works have been done, because they did not repent. And he said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, 
they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So he's really saying here that if the mighty works that he had done that the Jews saw had been done in some of those other cities, they would have repented. That means that they would have, God would have gotten their attention and they would have responded unlike some of the Jews of Jesus' day. But I say to you, verse 22, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. The day of judgment. In other words, it's talking about a time in the future when God is going to judge. And I don't know exactly how others think of this. They must think that, well, some will have greater punishment than others. But he said it's going to be more tolerable. When we understand God's plan, when we understand this last great day, that God is going to give all these people a full and a complete and a fair opportunity to choose his way. That's what it's talking about in this judgment, this time of judgment, in the day of judgment then for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to the grave. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day as vile, and rotten as the city of Sodom was, and we can go back and read it. And it's used as an example of terrible sin. Uh, nevertheless, Jesus said that if the works had been done in Sodom that were done in Israel or the Judah at that time, that it would have remained until this day. Meaning if they'd been given the same chance, they would have repented. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Notice the 12th chapter of Matthew, Matthew 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So they're going to come up, the men of Nineveh are going to come up in the judgment along with the Jews of Jesus' day. You know, Nineveh repented in a certain sort of way, but they didn't have salvation offered to them. It was more of a, a physical repentance, a turning away from a lot of their sins, but they didn't know the name of Jesus Christ. They didn't really understand the plan of God. And so, as commendable as it is, it says that when they come up, because they did repent at the preaching of Jonah, then they're going to condemn this generation because they will have seen all of these mighty works that Jesus had performed says, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. And then it goes on to say in verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. So she's going to rise up with this generation. They're all going to rise up together. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So when we understand this day, all these scriptures fit together. Uh, otherwise, it's hard to know how you could possibly place them together. Uh, John, the seventh chapter. Here we have Jesus actually speaking on this last day. And I know there's some have tried to say, well, this is the seventh day of the feast, but uh, we'll let them believe what they want to. But it says, on the last day, verse 37, John 7, 37. That great day of the feast, and this is why we call it the last great day, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so he's saying here, on this last day of the feast, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Right now, not anybody can come to Christ because the Father must first of all draw him. And I often hear people say that, well, I was always searching for the truth until I found it, or so many words to that effect. Now, you might have been searching for happiness through religion because it says none is righteous, no, not one. None seeks after God, no, not one. So, it has to do with the fact that God called you. There are a lot of people out here who say they are searching for the truth, but they're not finding it because God has to open your mind. And if you really were seeking for the truth, God put that thought in your mind. It is calling from God. 
No man can come to me except the Father in heaven draw him. And yet Jesus said on the last great day that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so he really gives us the key, the clue of what this whole uh, holy day means. Let's go over to Romans, the ninth chapter, Romans 9. And here we have a passage, Romans 9, 10, and 11, <clears throat> that are really talking about this fact that, that God had, uh, <clears throat> that it's a matter of God's calling. And he shows how God used Pharaoh uh, for his purpose. He used Moses for his purpose. And he shows that uh, it, it is a matter of a calling, as it is written in verse 13, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So it gives that example there. And as we go through this passage, we see that God has hidden the meaning from the Jews of that day, and he was calling the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were grafted into the vine as the natural branches were broken off. And so then, in chapter 11, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that uh, you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, and blindness uh, that blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God allowed a certain blindness to happen to them. God uh, allowed that, allowed Satan to blind their minds until the fullness of the Gentiles, and then God would deal with them. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. That's talking about a future time, when all Israel is going to be saved. And so we come down to verse 33. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Not only the knowledge of God of how to bring all this about, but the wisdom of God a great and a wonderful plan that we saw at the very beginning with Passover, and it goes all the way through to the end of this day. And it is a separate feast. It's not a day that we can, you know, come for part of it uh, and, and then leave at noon and forget the rest of it. No, this is a full uh, high day, a, a full day that we are here to learn from. And so it says, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We would never have done it this way. But when it's all said and done, we're going to look back and, wow, what incredible wisdom God had. I think we can do that a little bit right now, but the whole world will be able to look back and they'll understand for the first time all the suffering, all the things that went on and how it was man's responsibility or man caused it. Of course, Satan was involved there as well, but we won't blame God anymore. We will be so thankful for God working out his purpose and his plan. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the eternal, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen.